Ben always does such a great job at those announcements videos, but we did uh, miss one announcement that we wanted to share with you guys. Uh, today is the 5th of December. It's the first uh, Sunday of the month, uh, which means we have a new members class taking place right after service in room 212 right upstairs. Um, it's kind of a good time to maybe think about that in part because, again, we're, we're searching for a new pastor, and when the time comes that we're voting the pastor in, uh, we do ask, you have to be a member to actually be able to vote the pastor in. So after the service today, right in room 212, you guys can go check that out and hang out with Gary. Does that sound cool? Awesome. Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? <laughs> Y'all, Christmas time is here. Are you excited? Maybe some people are not very excited, right? Uh, this stage, I have to give credit to the Master, Master Politos. Uh, they've been here for hours this week, making this place look so good. In fact, they had Vinny climbing the tree just to put the ornaments on. So mad credit to, to Vinny. He did a lot of that work. But Christmas time is among us, right? I'm looking out, and I'm seeing people wear red and green and the plaid. It is here, whether you like it or not. Um, I wanted to help you all out this morning. I did the math, which says a lot because I'm not a big math fan. Sorry, Jeremiah Stone. He's uh, my high school math teacher. Not a big math fan, but I did the math for you guys that uh, today is 19 days, 14 hours, and about 36 minutes until Christmas, right? That's getting pretty close. That, I did, it is uh, 1,694,000 seconds and about 28,000 240 minutes, right? And so I figured, hey, let me help you out and let you know when Christmas is coming. And as I share those details, some of you get really excited, right? Like some of you are at home watching, sipping eggnog with your ugly sweater, and you're not even listening to the sermon because you're kind of humming Mariah Carey, like all I want for Christmas is you, right? Um, but then some of you got a little mad at me there, <laughs> Right? Some of you, when you know Christmas is that close, you got a little mad. You're like, why are you sharing those details? You kind of had this moment of panic, right? You're like, Christian, the presents are going to go out when they go out. Santa's going to come when we tell him that we are ready, right? But whether we like it or not, Christmas is almost here. And I think for some of us, it really does bring up a panic of some kind, right? Because there's so much to do. There's so much to do. We have countless checklists that we have to check off in order to prepare for December 25th. And I actually took it upon myself. I actually went to Google. And it's like, what kind of checklist do people worry about for the holidays? And, and some of these came up. So, you know, we have the Christmas card list, right? Everyone gets super excited about making that list, right? We have a Christmas Eve party invitation list, a Christmas Day party invitation list. There's a shopping list. There's your children's gift list, your spouse's gift list, your own gift list. And there's an Amazon save it for later list, right? They have that. It's incredible. There's a cleaning checklist. There's your to-do list and there's every husband's favorite list the honey do list christmas edition and uh it's actually everyone's least favorite especially when christmas lights are involved right uh there's the colleague christmas gift list and there's a checklist to keep track of your checklist and then and then some of y'all some of us have a liquor store list right but then another really important list to remember after the you know speaking of a liquor store list there's santa's naughty and nice list, right? And so we have all of these lists to worry about when it comes to Christmas. For, uh, for my family, there was like one checklist that was the checklist every Christmas, and that was the baklava checklist, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Baklava, so my family's Greek. My mom would make a ton of baklava every Christmas time to give to colleagues, to give to all of our teachers, which I'm one of five, so that's a lot of teachers. They, she would give it to friends. She would give it to family. And so every year, the baklava checklist was the checklist in the Hessling house, right? Almost every room in our house became the kitchen, right? Because we just ran out of space. And so there'd be trays and plates and trays and plates of baklava absolutely everywhere. It was insane, right? So we had two, two checklists that we were worrying about. It was the shopping checklist for baklava, right? So we had to buy butter, phyllo dough, butter, the pecans, butter, and brown sugar, and, and butter, and, and sugar. And I said butter a lot because it was unreal how much butter went into the baklava. Like, it should be totally illegal uh, how much butter we put into the baklava. And so we had this shopping list of items to 
to get. But then there was the coveted checklist to be a recipient of a glorious plate of baklava, right? This, this, this incredible checklist to receive it, right? You could get this plate of baklava for Christmas and nothing else, and it would be the best Christmas ever, right? Because we had this little industry right here in Louisville Road, undetected, just this baklava industry, so much of it, and it was so good. I remember as I was a kid, I'd walk around the house and see all these plates of baklava. I actually never told my mom this, and she's here today, so she's finding out just like you guys are. Uh, I'd walk around the house, and baklava works in such a way where you could take the top layer off and eat it, and no one would know. <laughs> because it's just dozens of layers of phyllo dough. And so I would take the top layer very, very meticulously and carefully. I would take it off when no one was looking, and I would eat it. And I would do that a lot, like way too much. Uh, and I would get my fix of baklava that way. But that was our checklist. That was our thing every Christmas, right? And as we're approaching the season, I'm sure many of you can think of your own checklist that you guys have. You think of your own traditions, your rituals that you need to do before the Christmas holiday ends. And it's a little overwhelming because um, for some of us, it's a lot, right? We have so much to do, right? We could take Andy Williams' favorite, fav famous song from 1963, the most wonderful time of the year, and we could throw in so many other adjectives, right? The most stressful time of the year. <laughs> The most overwhelming time of the year, the most sleep-deprived time of the year, right? It is just so busy. It is so crazy that we have all these things to do. And so I know it's not all that bad, but it is busy. But the problem is, as I contend, that I think sometimes in the busyness and the hustle and bustle of the holiday, we do neglect some non-negotiables, right? We forego some really important things. We forget maybe some of the things that maybe should be at the top of our checklist. And so we're starting a series today for the next few weeks called the Christmas Checklist. And our hope through this series is to share as a community, as a, as a CLC family, some things that maybe we should consider putting at the top of our checklist. Things that we should not sacrifice, right? Things that we should not forget or forgo. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to go over a few things that we recommend. Hey, this should be at the top of your checklist. This, sh this should be the most important checklist amidst all of our checklists, even the baklava checklist. I'm sorry, mom. Uh, it should be most important. And so that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. And for this first uh, Sunday that we're working through this, this and I'm just going to show my cards on the front end. This is what we're going to ask to put at the top of our list this year. Something as a, as a church family and as a community and for you and your family to consider putting this at the top of your Christmas list. And that's expectation. Expectation. Living with expectation that God is going to do something great. This Christmas season and beyond, we want to challenge you and invite you to live with eager expectation. Because today's passage that we're going to be working through in Luke uh, 17 talks about how Jesus came uh, to earth and it talks about the second coming. But what it talks about is the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, right? The arrival of the kingdom of heaven, which we understand that Jesus started that when he came to earth as a baby, right? And he promises to finish the work that he started, right? And we understand as the second coming, he promises to come again and to finish the work that he started at that first Christmas, right? And so this passage that we're talking about is a passage beckoning us to live with expectation. Live with expectation that God is going to finish the work that he started 2,000 years ago, right? A passage that challenges our own expectations and invites us to carry some new expectations about what God is going to do. So we're going to talk about that today, but before we do so, I'm going to pray for us. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're such a good God. Even in crazy seasons like this, we sing and declare that you are a good, good God. And so God, we pray today that you would open our hearts to receive what you might have for us, that we could be careful be careful on how we prioritize our list this year, but that we might consider what it means to live with great and eager expectation. God, we pray that we would encounter you in this space. We love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
All right, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 17 today. If you have a phone, you can pull it up on there, or we have the Bibles in the pews. You can use those. Wanted to mention as well, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead, take one from the pew and keep it. You can write in it. That is yours to keep. We want you to have that. Um, and so we're going to be in Luke chapter 17 today, which is all about the kingdom of heaven, and it deals with expectation, right? As we've been talking about the last few weeks, we're continuing through the book of Luke, and Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem right? And on the way, he's continuing to teach, he's continuing to heal, and he's continuing to usher in this kingdom that we will one day experience in fullness, right? And so he's continuing to teach about this coming kingdom. Last week, we talked about how he healed some lepers, right? Not leopards, but lepers, uh, and how they encountered and experienced the kingdom of heaven, and he continues to do that this week. And again, we know what lies in Jerusalem, that's going to be where he is crucified and killed, right? And, he, and then he's resurrected. He comes back to life. And so with this in mind, he's journeying to Jerusalem where this is kind of the expectation that they have for him. And so we're going to start in uh, Luke chapter 17 where Luke allows us to eavesdrop in on the teaching of Jesus right here in verse 20. And this is what it says. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered... The kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. So just like a lot of other teachings that happen, they happen because the Pharisees just say something, right? They ask a question, they poke and prod. And so we have this teaching today, and this question that they're asking is one of expectation, right? What can we expect? What's it going to look like when you usher in the kingdom? But we have to be careful because the Pharisees seldom do they ask things just out of sheer curiosity, right? A lot of times they're trying to disprove Jesus. They're trying to make him stumble so people would ridicule him. And so this is not a question of curiosity. It's more of one to poke and prod and to ruin Jesus' credibility, right? And so they're asking this question because when people thought of kingdoms back then, a lot of these images and things came to mind, right? When someone's ushering in a kingdom, back in this time, it was accompanied by a population, right? People. It was accompanied by authority, like armies, right? It was accompanied by land. You weren't a kingdom until you had land, right? And so they're asking this question because what Jesus is doing does not meet any of their expectations, right? Like, what, what are you talking about this kingdom, right? Because the religious people of that time, when they read the Old Testament, they understood, they thought that God was going to reestablish Jewish rule, right? And he would do so maybe through war or through battle or through a leader conquering, right? And so when Jesus says he's ushering in the kingdom and they see none of that, they are confused, right? They're like, what are you doing? Like, when is this kingdom going to come about? Because surely we do not see it. And so many people would have looked at Jesus, this poor man from Nazareth, and they would have said, you are a fool to think that you are ushering in the kingdom of God, right? C.S. Lewis actually popularized the, the work of Scottish preacher John Duncan, which is known as the Trilemma. And the idea here is that whenever Jesus went around and told people that he was the Son of God ushering in some kingdom, they would think of him in one of three ways. They would think of Jesus in one of three ways. Every time he said, hey, I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven here. I'm the Son of God. They would think he was a liar, right? Someone just totally lying, deceiving people around him, right? They would think he's a lunatic, just self-deluded, like just kind of lost in the head, right? Because no one's supposed to say that they are Lord because Caesar's Lord, right? What a crazy thing to do to tell people that Caesar's not Lord, but you are. And so people would have thought Jesus is surely a lunatic, right? Or if they didn't think he was a liar or a lunatic, they would have thought that he was Lord, right? So people thought he was a liar or a lunatic or Lord. And in this case, the Pharisees are asking this question because they think Jesus is a liar. He is a lunatic and he does not know what he is talking about, right? Because Jesus did not meet their expectations. Jesus did not meet their expectations. And we can be like that sometimes too, right? 
where we have expectations for God to work in some way, or maybe we want to know all of the fine details before we commit or before we kind of take that step of faith, right? We can be like that sometimes too. Maybe there's a little Pharisee in all of us. And so what we want to do this morning is kind of work through that and figure out how can we live with expectation, right? How can we live with great expectation? So again, Jesus replies to them, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. And the Greek word for observe, there's actually paraterasis, which means like to closely observe. And so Jesus is saying you could look closely, but you will not be able to observe what is happening. You will not be able to observe the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because your expectations are off. (laughs) You are looking for the wrong thing right? You, your expectations are totally off. And so the passage continues in verse 21. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. And so he does answer their question in some way, right? He's saying, people are going to say, look, here it is, there it is. They're all wrong. But let me tell you, the kingdom of God is actually right here. Other translations say the kingdom of God is within you, implying that followers of Christ themselves get to bring about the kingdom of God in in a similar way that Jesus did. So he's saying the kingdom of God is here, which (laughs) that would have been mega confusing for the, uh, the Pharisees to hear. Like, what are you talking about? I do not see no kingdom of God here, right? But God is ushering in a kingdom unlike anything, unlike any other kingdom, unlike Rome, We live in a great country, America, but it's going to be way better than America, than any country that we could visit, right? It's going to be unlike anything we've seen because he's ushering in a kingdom that is perfect, that is free of death, free of pain, free of heartbreak. And that is what Christ is doing. Now, I could explain what uh, Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God is here, but actually I'm going to use a video from the Bible Project. I talked about the founder of the Bible Project a few weeks ago. His name's Tim Mackey, and they do these free videos. I encourage everyone to check them out. But we're going to check out a video from the Bible Project that talks about what Jesus meant by saying the kingdom of heaven is here. It's about six minutes, but it's a really, really good illustration. So we're going to go ahead and check this out together. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're they're different in their nature, But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning, where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world, and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted... God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth Uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. 
but not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. So this is the picture that the scriptures are trying to portray. This is what Jesus in his teachings is trying to get people to understand, right? At the first advent, the first Christmas, we see this overlap begin to take place because Christ, God, has come down in the form of a baby to dwell among his people, right? And so we see this start happening at the first Christmas, and now we await for the second Christmas, right? The second advent for when God will come back to make those circles overlap, to bring heaven to earth forever, right? To redeem and restore everything that is broken. So this is a second advent or a second Christmas, or if you want to be like the life of a party, just say the Greek word for it. So if you're at a Christmas party, which I'm sure many of you have them on your to-do list, uh, you know, bring up the Greek word for it. Say, hey, are you excited for the parousia, right? People will think you are really, really cool if you say that word. So uh, we are waiting with eager expectation. We're actively engaged in participating in establishing the kingdom of God here on earth, right? And the the disciples, they don't see it at all. They can look closely, but they do not see it at all because their expectations for the kingdom of God are off. They are not listening to what it is that Christ is doing, right? They missed it because their lack of or their wrong expectations. So the kingdom of heaven is here. 
And the rest of the passage describes what it looks like, what our expectation can look like for the future. Jesus is actually going to paint a picture of what it's going to be like when these two worlds, when heaven and earth come back together. And so that's what the rest of the passage talks about. We're going to pick up in verse 22. Then he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there or look here, but do not go off, do not go, do not set off in pursuit. So I love the fact that we have four Gospels because they provide, they kind of complement each other and provide a big picture for what's happening here. If you actually look in Matthew and Mark's account of this teaching, they are referring to an event that will take place in the coming years. They're actually specifically referring to the destruction of Jerusalem when they are recounting this teaching. Because in 70 AD, and actually there's there's non-Christian and Christian historians alike that affirm that this happened. In 70 AD, Rome overthrew Jerusalem. Those Jewish rebels and Rome had enough. They overthrew Jerusalem. They destroyed so many people. They destroyed the whole city and they destroyed the temple except the western wall which you can still visit today in Jerusalem, right? And so they destroyed this city. And so when they, so they're focusing on this event that's coming up, but their secondary focus is the parousia, the second coming, right? Just generally speaking, they're speaking about this event. But when Luke, which is what we're in today, right? Luke, he kind of takes a different approach and he's just focusing on the second coming. He wants us to just, just be aware of what we can expect and in the meantime, what we will experience. And so with that in mind, uh, Luke teaches on this. And Jesus says to them and us that it's going to get far worse. The mess of this world will get far more complicated than you can anticipate. You're going to have a deep yearning for God to come and establish his kingdom right now but you will not see it, right? You will have a deep desire that God will make all things right again, that he will redeem and restore everything that is broken. And we've all have experienced this, right? You know, if we experience divorce or, or death or pain, we have a deep yearning within us that God will make things right again, right? You can look at 9-11 or I, I work with high school students, so this hits a little closer to home, school shootings, right? The, the chaos and the ruin of this world leaves us begging and asking God, finish your work. Redeem and restore everything that is broken. But he's saying you're going to experience these things and you will not see the kingdom of God, right? But we long to see it, right? And so Luke warns them in the meantime. He offers them a warning. Don't be susceptible to false saviors or false messiahs. Again, he says in that passage, right? Uh, people will say, look there or look here, but do not go off in pursuit. There's a man named Josephus. He was a historian from the time of Jesus, and he actually wrote, and uh, you know, there's a lot of actually historians that wrote about this, that during that time, there were a lot of people that came forward and said, I'm the Messiah. Like Jesus was not the only one that came forward. A lot of people came forward and said, I'm the Messiah here to redeem and restore the world. Like I am the Messiah. I am the Savior, right? And so people are saying, look here. Here's the Savior. Or look there. I found the Savior. But Luke is offering warning. Do not go off in pursuit. These are false saviors. Let us not turn to these things that we think will save us, right? And aren't we prone to do that sometimes? When life gets really difficult, Right? When we get really vulnerable, aren't we prone to turn to a lot of things that we think will remedy the issue, right? Maybe it's a, a politician or a political party. Maybe it's our bank accounts. Maybe it's a bottle, right? Maybe it's an addiction or maybe it's ourselves. We think I can work hard enough to save myself. Don't we do that too? And so Jesus is warning them here. He's saying, hey, Jesus and Luke admonish us. Hold on to eager expectation." Do not set off in pursuit of these false saviors. Don't casually or eagerly, consciously or unconsciously pursue other saviors. Instead, instead live with expectation that God will finish what he started at that first Christmas, right? Because there will be days, there's not, it won't, might be, but there will be days where you yearn to see God 
And you yearn to see him finish what he started. So hold on with eager expectation that one day you will see God and that God will make all things right. He's trying to encourage them. It's going to be difficult, but just hold on with expectation. And so he continues in the passage to actually describe what that day will be like. In verse 24, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So here we get a a moment of prophetic imagery, right? It says, so as the lightning, it's trying to describe what this day will be like when it is to come. And it says, as the lightning strikes, like as it lights up the sky, so will that day be. So I'm 27 years old, and I have like an unspeakable phobia of lightning, right? That's okay. Like, it's kind of funny. You can laugh, but I do have uh, the AV team just kind of jot names of those who laugh. But uh, I have a phobia of lightning, and it used to be a lot worse. But what would happen is when I was a kid, I'd kind of wake up and just kind of panic during storms, and I'd go to my parents. What my dad would do is he would actually be, bring me and my brother back to our room, and then he would uh, sit us down on the floor, and he'd just, like, open the blinds wide. And then he'd sit down on the floor with us and just watch the lightning, right? And so that actually helped a lot, brought a lot of healing. But I have a phobia. I still kind of am am nervous sometimes because lightning's just so unpredictable, right? And it is so loud and the magnitude of it is just jarring, right? And so when Jesus is saying this day is going to be like that, it's going to be unpredictable, right? So we have to wait with expectation. It's going to be unpredictable, and it is going to be of a magnitude that you can't understand. And then he goes further to add another detail. It's going to stretch from one part of the sky to the other. I like Matthew's account where he actually says it's going to stretch from the east to the west, meaning the entirety of the sky. I remember I'd fly through uh, Chicago when I was in grad school a lot, and I would land at Midway in Chicago. But I just remember landing, and I would look out of the plane from 20,000, 30,000 feet in the air, and I would just see these skyscrapers that looked like grains of rice, right? They're just so incredibly small. And then you look up and you see the sky that is hovering above them, and it is just massive, right? And that's just in Chicago. And so just imagine from the east to the west, the entirety of the sky, the entirety of the earth is of a magnitude that we cannot begin to comprehend. And so Jesus is saying, it is going to be of a magnitude that you cannot comprehend. For lightning to flash across the entirety of the earth is a, is a magnitude of proportions that we can't begin to comprehend. And so it's interesting because the start of the kingdom was meek and mild, right? In a manger with a baby. But when God finishes the work, it's going to be unmistakable. We will see it. And so why is he sharing this detail, right? You will know it when you see it. It's going to be unmistakable, right? You, you will know the real Savior in a world of false saviors. You will know the real kingdom of heaven, and you won't have to settle for any other kingdom. Do not settle. Hold on with great expectation that God will finish the job. Even amidst pain and destruction and chaos and death, there's a great promise that there will be an unmistakable ushering in of the kingdom of heaven, free of pain, free of death, and God will be king, and he invites us to partake in that. So this is what you can expect, right? In a world of false messiahs, like don't go there, don't go here, but wait with expectation because you will know it when you see it. And then he transitions. However, you know, something first must happen in order for this to come to fruition. He says in verse 25, but first he must endure much suffering and be rejected by this generation. In order to begin ushering in this kingdom, there's work to be done, right? We kind of saw it in the video where Jesus himself is the spotless lamb, the sacrifice that atones for the sins of the people. So before God can bring about his kingdom in fullness, he has to finish the work of the first Christmas, right? And so Jesus, and again, he's right outside of Jerusalem. He's nearing Jerusalem. This is about to happen, and he's telling people, I first must be rejected. And he's referring to his crucifixion where the religious leaders and the the government will execute him, right? So this is almost a prerequisite of sorts for God to usher in the kingdom. And so what he then does is he continues on and he uses stories from the Old Testament to help people understand what does this rejection 
look like? What does rejecting God look like? And then he also uses these, uh, these, these stories from the Old Testament to paint a picture of what that second coming is going to look like as well. And so we find ourselves in, in verse 26. He says, just as, I mean, he's comparing it to something, just as it was in the days of Noah, so too will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, having their Christmas parties, and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and, and destroyed all of them. Jesus then references another instance which is not too dissimilar to this one. Instead of destruction coming in the form of water, it's destruction coming in the form of fire in verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed all of them. It will be like that on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So what he's trying to do, he's using these images that his audience would have been very familiar with to help them understand what they can expect, like what is to come. And they're not, he's not trying to scare them, right? He's trying to be honest about what they can expect for the future. And so what will it be like in the days of the Son of Man? There's going to be a rejection. And it's interesting here because uh, if you know the stories of Noah and the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, you know that the scripture talks about them um, being destroyed because of their wickedness, right? But here in Jesus' teaching, he kind of takes a different approach. He focuses on another sin. Instead of them rejecting God with their wickedness, Jesus is kind of highlighting they rejected God with their worldliness, their apathy, right? Because what are they doing here? They're just eating and drinking and going about their lives. They're building their own kingdoms of which they were kings and queens. The problem was their preoccupation with their own kingdom over and above expectation and participation in God's kingdom. This also was their sin. And C.S. Lewis talks about kind of this idea in the screw tape letters. His book, he characterizes the idea of sin in this manner. It says, it doesn't matter how small the sins are, right? And we're defining sin as just choosing our plan over God, right? He says, it doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. So what will it be like on the days of the Son of Man? A world of people with little expectation. A people so preoccupied with the self that they miss out on the kingdom that God is ushering in, that God is establishing. And so as a natural byproduct of that rejection, there's judgment, which is what we see, right? And isn't judgment what we want, right? We want God to make things right again. We want God to restore the world. And in order for him to do that, he has to figure out where do, you want, where do people want to be? Do they want to participate in this or not? So judgment, if you look it up, is just defined as examining or appraising or making a diagnosis of the nature of how things are. And so we see that kind of depicted in this story, right? And so upon judgment, it's discovered that some people do not want to participate, right? We, we, could, we could put the Pharisees in this category. Some people just refuse to participate. They're defiant against God. They are, they are good in their own kingdoms. They've built their own kingdom. That is what they would prefer to stay in. And so upon realizing this, God just gives us what we want, right? If you want to stay in your own kingdom, he, that happens, right? He will honor whatever decision it is that we make. And so this judgment happens. And then God casts all evil, all pride, all of our kingdoms outside of his kingdom because the kingdom of heaven cannot exist with evil in it, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. The kingdom of heaven can't exist with evil in it. So God will honor whatever decision people make and then they will be sorted out accordingly per whatever kingdom they want to live in, right? And in these instances, the, the judgment is being depicted as fire and water, right? And the, the pictures that they're separated from the source of life itself. They are totally consumed, right? Our kingdoms, our attempts at finding our own saviors outside of God in this messy world will not be sufficient. Instead, it leads to destruction. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell the disciples in this moment. Don't go chasing, out, chasing after all of these other saviors because they will not be sufficient for you right? You cannot do it on your own. 
And so Jesus is trying to help them to know what to expect, which is so gracious of them. And he comes to this time and time again, teaching the same thing because the people do not get it, right? He's trying to help them understand this is what you can expect. And this is why teaching after teaching, Jesus is telling people the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You no longer have to build your own kingdoms. You no longer have to work hard enough to earn God's favor. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just follow, right? Repent for the kingdom is near. Turn. It's just a repentance is reorienting yourself. Turn away from your own kingdoms and participate in a kingdom that is so much better. Because Jesus, we have a loving father who wants nothing more but to give us life to the fullest. So that's what Jesus is teaching constantly, trying to invite people into that. And so Jesus continues in his explanation of this day in verse 31. On that day, anyone on the housetop who has belongings in the house must not come down to take them away. And likewise, anyone in the field must not turn back, right? And so the house, the rooftop was actually kind of their patio. If they want to go tan or listen to a podcast, they go on their, their rooftop. And then it had kind of a staircase that went back down. And so God's saying, when that day comes, which will be unmistakable, don't go downstairs and, you know, grab your belongings, right? If you're in the field or if you're at work, don't rush back to get things that, you, you know, you think you might need. And some of us, you know, I think that we think like, duh, like if I saw the world ending, I wouldn't go inside for like my vitamins and PlayStation, right? Like it, it's almost like common sense. But what I think is happening here is just a commentary on our commitments, right? I think it's just a commentary of our commitments. What, um, I, I suspect that it's less about the principle of grabbing your stuff and more of just this idea of we're trying to live in two kingdoms. We're trying, you know, we want to we wanna give God so much of our life so long as we remain comfortable. So I'm going to kind of have one foot in my own kingdom. I'm going to do my own thing. And when it's convenient, when maybe I need God, I'm going to have my foot in his kingdom. And I will do, you know, the right thing and all that stuff, yada, yada, right? And so I think he's trying to offer a commentary of like, don't be split. Don't have a divided heart. Because if you're choosing both kingdoms, you're really choosing your own kingdom. And so he's saying, don't go and grab those things. But welcome and usher in the kingdom of heaven and experience it in fullness. Because, right, that would be a day that we look forward to, that God is making things right again, right? And then he uh, makes a, kind of another reference in verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Oh, what happened with Lot's wife? If we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, they were told to flee the city, for judgment was falling on the city in the form of fire. And, um, and they said, don't turn back. Just go, Right? And so what happened is actually as, as they're leaving, Lot's wife stops and actually turns around to observe the destruction. And so what we get is this image here of someone who's trying to straddle two cities, two kingdoms, right? Maybe concerned about the belongings that they have, concerned about the things that they left in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Um, and so she straddled uh, kind of these two kingdoms, and as a result, she did not get far enough from the destruction that was falling, and she died. She was turned into a, a pillar of salt, is, is the image that we get in Scripture. And it's just representing of a torn heart. Are we getting the point here? Remember, Jesus is trying to teach them not to settle for false saviors and false kingdoms that will not do, but to hold on to expectation that God's going to finish the job. You don't need to turn to anything else. Hold on to his promise that he will finish the job. And he wraps up this point with a, a proverbial saying of sorts that a lot of us actually are probably familiar with. We probably heard this before in verse 33. He says, those who try to make their life secure will lose it. But those who lose their life will keep it. I'm going to read it again. Those who try to make their life secure will lose it. But those who lose their life will keep it. Sounds super counterintuitive, right? Like, I imagine the disciples were looking at Jesus and it's like, maybe he is a lunatic. Maybe he's not the Lord. Like, what's he saying, right? Whoever, as the Greek kind of implies, acquires, earns, or purchases, or preserves his life will destroy it. But whoever utterly destroys his life will preserve it, will keep it. I, I came across an image that I think could help us understand uh, this. So in some areas of the world, I don't know if this is still a practice, but it used to be the case that they, you could trap a small monkey with like a coconut or a gourd. And uh, I wanted to demonstrate, but we don't have a monkey, so Megan's going to bring some from kids. I'm kidding. We're not, we're not going to demonstrate that. But um, what they would do 
is uh, they, would, they would have this, like, this gourd, and they would drill a hole in the gourd, just big enough for the hand of the monkey to fit in, right? And then they would anchor the gourd somehow, maybe tie it to a tree or a rock. And so what w- and they would fill it with, like, fruit or rice of some kind, right? So what would happen is they'd set up this gourd, and the monkey would reach its hand in and kind of grab some of the bait. But, of course, when it closed its hand on the bait, its fist would be too big, and it would not be able to pull it out of the gourd, right? Um, so you think, like, oh, no problem. Like, just let go of the bait and take your hand out and go about your business, right? Now, you think that would be the case, but that's the problem. What they found is that the monkey would never let go. Its hand would be in the gourd, and it would never let go. It would struggle and struggle and struggle, but it would never let go. And it would stay there until either the, the, the captors came and captured it, or it would die there, but it would never let go. In some ways, aren't we like the monkey? We have things in this life that we grip so tightly because we think they are the answer, right? We think our bank accounts, our good works, our status are it. That'll save us. And so we grip so tightly to them. Just like the Israelites, right? They lost sight of what was to come. They lost their expectations. So as a result, they held so tightly to their own kingdoms. They held tightly to their false saviors. But what Jesus has been trying to teach all along is that's not going to work. And just like the monkey holding so tightly to those things will be your demise. That's not going to save you. And so the solution is, as a famous queen and artist, Elsa said, let it go, right? Right? Let it go. Jesus is sufficient enough. You don't have to build your own kingdom and hold on to it. You don't have to rely on your bank account. You don't have to rely on your good works. God is ushering in a kingdom and it alone is sufficient. So just let go. Don't worry about these things. Let go of your life and in doing so, you will find salvation. But if we hold on to these kingdoms, if we straddle the two kingdoms and want to participate in both, we'll be destroying our lives, right? So that's what Jesus is trying to get, get across to them here, right? And I think the idea of giving all of ourselves to God is a bit terrifying for some, right? We get anxious, like, I don't know if it's going to work, right? But shouldn't it be freeing, right, that we can let go, that we do not have to worry, that we just trust that God's love and God's grace is sufficient for us, right? And so the passage then wraps up. In verse 34, I tell you on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding meal together. One will be taken and the other left. And I think we often read passages like this, and and it it brings up Jewish eschatology, which is the study of end times. It's another word. If you want to be really cool at your Christmas party, say eschatology. People will be like, wow, they're really smart. Um, Jewish eschatology, the study of end times. I think what happens a lot here is when we read this, we think of like the rapture, right? We have to be careful when we read scripture not to throw anything else that's not there on it. Because actually, if you look, the the word rapture is not in the Bible anywhere, right? Okay? So we just got to be careful. Let's let the text speak to us in this moment. Let's not try and put anything extra on it in this time. And so what is it saying? It's saying at the second coming, there's an image. There's this this idea of separation, of distinction, right? As Jesus ushers in the kingdom once and for all, those who want to participate will participate. But those who want to straddle the two kingdoms, those who want to keep their kingdoms, those who just can't let go, they will inherit the kingdom that they built, right? And so he's trying to depict that in this image. We'll remain in our own kingdoms outside of the kingdom of God, left to destruction and demise, right? And the passage concludes uh, with his disciples asking one more question. They ask him, where, Lord? Referring to, hey, where does this happen? Where, Lord, he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures gather. Mmm, Merry Christmas, let's pray, right? <laughs> it's not a very uh, encouraging, uplifting uh, verse there. But uh, the disciples asked, you know, to which uh, Jesus responds with a proverbial saying. This image isn't favorable, but it gets the point across, right? Vultures represent the presence of death, right? They don't necessarily do the killing, but they show up to what is already dead. They consume that which is dead. In the same way, those who are spiritually bankrupt, who have incurable moral and spiritual corruption, are spiritually dead and will be consumed by 
divine judgment, right? It's not intended to be an insult of any kind. It's just an observation, right? This is just the nature of things. For those who remain defiant towards God, who remain in opposition towards God, who grip so tightly to their own kingdom, God honors that wish, and they remain outside of the kingdom. And so this devastation and destruction arrive where? To those who are spiritually dead, like the way crows show up to a corpse. It's not a very fun passage, right? I heard one pastor put it this way. You know when you're driving down the highway and there's just that big LED sign that says like 27 people killed in automobile accidents, right? That's not a favorable image. Why do they put that there? They want to remind us to drive safely. It's for our safety that that is there. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's not trying to, he's not trying to be cruel. He's trying to be honest. He's trying to say, hey, heed this teaching because I want you to be safe. I want you to experience the kingdom of heaven. And so this is what Jesus is doing at this moment. He continues to usher in the kingdom of heaven, right? We've seen this throughout his whole ministry. He invites people to abandon their own kingdoms to participate in the kingdom of heaven, which is such a gracious thing for Jesus to do time and time again, right? And so to sum up the whole thing, at the first Christmas, God came in the form of a baby and had begun to usher in the kingdom of heaven. And in a world of chaos and false messiahs, false solutions and false kingdoms, we await with eager expectation and participation for God to finish the job. Scholars call it, we're in the time of already but not yet. The kingdom's already here. We can experience, we can participate in what God is doing today. But it's not yet in its full glory. It is coming, right? We hold on to that expectation. And so we hold on to that expectation for God to finish the job, for God to redeem and restore all things, including us. So I'm actually going to close with uh, an invitation. Sometimes it can be tricky to understand what does it look like to live with expectation, right? Because like, I don't even know what I'm doing next week. <laughs> and then to kind of look so far ahead and kind of live in this anticipation and expectation to participate in what God is doing, right? But if you think about it, if we have expectation of something, it gives birth to preparation and participation naturally. Like if I genuinely expect that something's to happen, naturally I start to participate and prepare, right? It bears impact on what we do now. And we see examples of that and we do it every day. Like we live in expectation every day, right? A 401k, we invest into it with the expectation that one day far off in the future we'll get a return. Right, that we will get to reap the benefit of investing in that 401k. We're really good at that, right? We exercise and eat for the expectation of health, right? It's a terrible thing to exercise. I hate running. Uh, but we do with the expectation that something is ahead, right? We attend this school or this program for, with the expectation of this career. So we're really good at living into expectation. My favorite example is one that maybe many of us sometimes hear on occasion from a loved one. And we hear the loved one say, we're expecting, right? It's this expect, uh, the, the parents anticipate welcoming new life into the world. And think about it. They're expecting, their expectation of this child gives birth to preparation and participation, right? And so when one is welcoming a new child into the world, the expectation results in the parents preparing themselves, right? They're reading books. They're, you know, trying to figure out how can I do this well. Maybe they're working on some issues that they've left unresolved for years, right? They prepare themselves. When one is welcoming a new child in the world, the expectation results in parents preparing others, right? Preparing other family members. Maybe they have a, a little boy already in or a little girl, and they're trying to say, hey, you're going to be a big brother or sister, right? They're preparing family around them. And the expectation results in the parent preparing the world around them for the arrival of a new child, right? They're preparing the room. They're painting it the right color. They're getting a car seat in the car, Right? They're, they're preparing the house, child-proofing the whole thing, right? So we're really good at living with expectation, right? So in the same way, may our expectation of God returning and making all things right again produce in us a life of pr preparation and participation now in the kingdom. Because if we believe it is here now, we can participate now, right? Let's prepare ourselves each and every day to grow more in the likeness of Jesus, right? Let's prepare our neighbors to encounter the love of Jesus. Let's show them the love of Jesus. Let's show them the culture of this coming kingdom, right? And then the last thing, let's prepare our broken and messy world 
by showing them the culture of heaven. Do you remember that image on the screen where it's partly overlapped, but Jesus was going in and creating little pockets of heaven, right? That's what we are called to do, is to create pockets of heaven and show the world the culture of the kingdom that we will one day inherit. So let's love our neighbors, let's love our enemies, and let's love the hurting, right? So this Christmas and beyond, may we add to our checklist eager expectation, and by the grace of God, may we actively let go of our kingdoms in exchange for something far better. Amen? Amen. Um, I'm going to pray, or actually, Gary's going to come up, and he's going to lead us in communion, and then uh, we'll pray in a bit here. So. And All the right. band is going to come I'll up take, as well. I'll take that. Yeah. Too. Thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. So um, it's great to be here with you today and have an opportunity to, um, to take communion together and be reminded. And you know, I think um, I love the um, illustration of the monkey and the, the melon. And I think, you know, sometimes we just, we just get hold of stuff and we sort of hang on to it. And, um, and when we're hanging on to it, we forget that, um, that God's call is actually for us to let go of that and to allow God to work in it. One of the words that Paul uses actually in 1 Corinthians 11 is he talks about taking time to examine ourselves. And so today as, we, um, as we're here, um, as we have a chance to come before God in communion, I'm gonna ask us to examine ourselves and just, just a couple of prompts for you to think about. One is, um, do you find that there's somebody maybe today that you need to forgive? Um, is there somebody that you maybe need to say that you're sorry for one of your actions. Paul actually talks about that. He says that um, be the church. Um, don't just simply go through the motions, but actually be God's body together. And so today as we come to this table, as we're reminded of um, God's love and grace, um, we're actually invited um, to realize that we do stand in need of a savior. Uh, we can't make this happen by ourselves. Jesus is Lord. Um, we believe when we take communion that he died and he rose again for us. And we also believe that he breaks this pattern of sin in our lives um, and gives us new life. So I want to invite you to remember the story. A story in which we, um, we find God's love, God's forgiveness, and God's grace. It was on the night that he was betrayed that he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said to them, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'd invite you to eat together. And then also in the same way after supper, he took a cup and he said, this is the cup which is poured out the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. So Lord God, you know us and you know, um, you know our propensity, you know our stubbornness, you know our hearts, and yet you love us and you've called us to be your people. God, I pray that you would just um, fill us with your Holy Spirit uh, remind us again that you are present in the bread, that you're present in the cup, um, and that your presence goes with us every place we go. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?
of shepherds, you trod the hearts of kings, and even as a baby, you were changing everything. You called me to your kingdom before your lips could speak, and even as a baby, you were reaching out for me. expected king. May that, may expectation be at the top of our checklist this year. We have work to do. We get to usher in this kingdom as we wait for it to come in its full glory. The way that I uh, wanted to, uh, thought to actually end today is I wanted to do a prayer together with you guys, one that you're probably familiar with. It's the one that Jesus taught his disciples. And in the prayer, it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if you want to pray it out loud with me, please do. If you'd rather just kind of soak it in, please do, but let us pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. We love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. You draw the hearts of shepherds. You draw the hearts of kings.
existing inside us we cannot contain your love will surely come find us like blazing wildfires 